Welcome to Fatal Fortunes. A show where we talk about people, places, and misfortunate events. So welcome back, guys, to another episode of Fatal Fortunes. This one is written by me. It is a murder, a murder, and it takes place in ye olde Cambridge, Massachusetts at Harvard University. I don't know about you, Nathan, but I never, ever, yep, back in Beantown, I never, ever thought that I could get into an Ivy League, therefore I never applied. What about you? No. Oh, yeah. Not at all. Why would I, why would I try that? <laughs> um, I also heard a crazy story. So basically this weekend, or if, if you're listening to this, we're recording this Halloween weekend. So last weekend, yeah. Casey Affleck was in town. And he went into a store that sold Wicked Pissa shirts and was asking the employees, like, do you know where the saying comes from? And they're like, no, it's just like a local accent thing. And he was like, I said it in a movie. And his girlfriend is like telling him to stop. And then my other friend, Jackie, she's, she's the manager of a store in Harvard Square. And he went in there and she said that he was absolutely the piece of shit you would have expected him to be. Yep. Yep. That tracks. So there we are in the old Cambridge, Massachusetts. And the year is 1995. Instead of starting with our subject's birth year this time, I wanted to talk about what was going on the year that this murder happened so we can frame and place the emotions those people were going through at that time. Uh, we're getting real close to the present, you know, really close to the time of our own births, which I think is cool. And of course, this is a story about these two women who came together and tragedy resulted, but I don't want anyone to think that I am glorifying this horrible tragedy, even though over the past two years I've had a podcast about glorifying horrible things that have happened. And remember, you can watch us now on Spotify. I straightened my hair for this. Dang. So if you guys want to go appreciate that, thank you. Thank you. And then there's also a light beam that I'm going to put, I'm yeah. just going to stay exactly in it so that you can barely see my zit. You can just think that my zit is a beam Perfect. of light. Anyway, let's just get right to it. The year is 1995. And I only put the stuff up through May because post-May is when the murder has happened. So they're not dealing with those pressures of what happens in the latter half of the year. But in Austria, Finland, and Sweden, they joined the European Union that year. There's the Mexican peso crisis where President Bill Clinton invokes emergency powers to extend a $20 billion loan to help Mexico avert financial collapse. I feel like that does not get talked about that often. Yeah, I didn't know about that. Yeah, I feel like we tend to be like, no, we're not giving Mexico any money. But that is a, that's a sum. Yeah, it's a big, that's that's a a big chunk of change. Chunk of dough. The United Kingdom's oldest investment banking firm, Barings Bank, collapses after securities broker Nick Leeson loses $1.4 billion by speculating Ooh. in the Tokyo Stock Exchange. I watched a documentary about that on YouTube earlier this mm. year. You know me, I love my financial crime documentaries, so. <laughs> Next, Steve Forsett lands in Leader, Saskatchewan, Canada, becoming the first person to make a solo flight 
across the Pacific Ocean. And guess what? A balloon. Wow. Daring. <laughs> Maybe a lot of listeners of True Crime will know what I'm about to talk about, but members of the doomsday called Om Shinrikyo carried out the Tokyo subway sarin attacks, which killed 14 people and led to over a thousand injuries. The attack remains the deadliest terror attack in Japanese history. Boxer Mike Tyson is released from prison after serving nearly three years. I should have looked up what for, but... And fellow Fatal Fortune, Selena, was murdered. R.I.P. I wanted to, before we got to the two people we're discussing today, I wanted to talk about the history of Harvard University. And Harvard University came into existence in 1636 by vote of the great and general court of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. It did not have a single building though. They kind of just said, we're agreeing to agree to build a college. It also did not have any instructors or students. Basically an idea that we're gonna plop into the ground. At this time, the only place that you could go to school was Boston Latin School, which was founded in 1635. But there was nowhere to go once you finish. It was basically you got your Latin education and your theology education, cap, boom, out into Massachusetts society. And of course, fun fact, I think that if you've been listening to this podcast for long enough, you know I went to Boston Latin School. So anytime I get to talk about my alma mater, I feel pretty gassed. And it, and it won't be the last time it comes up, okay? No. It won't be the last. In 1638... The college became home for North America's first known printing press. John Harvard, he had donated about 400 books, which was a sizable amount at the time, to the school along with several hundred pounds, and the college was renamed for him. So it wasn't founded by John Harvard, but it was named in tribute to John Harvard. I know that that's a big misconception. For about the first hundred years, the school was centered around, like I said, the studying of theology with no one denomination ruling, except, you know, we're all Puritans, so. Seven alumni ended up dying fighting in the Revolutionary War. Between 1830 and 1870, Harvard became, you know, the elitist place we know today. The state had started to pull back on funding for private universities after the fall of the Federalist Party. The first black graduate of Harvard was Richard Theodore Greener in 1870, and Louis Brandeis, the first Jewish person to sit on the Supreme Court graduated from Harvard as well. Um, they were known as pretty progressive for letting in Jews, which is, you know, ironic because we think of that as just, you know, bare minimum, not progressive at all today. But it was like, wow. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> they were so ahead of their time. <laughs> letting in other whites. Oh, my God. Weird how they were the, one of the last cities in the country to desegregate schools, though. But let's focus on the good things. Like, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Harvard took in more Jewish and ethnic minorities than any other Ivy League did in the 19th and 20th centuries. By the 1970s, tuition at Harvard, it was $2,700. However, today... It is $51,000 a year, making it, I'm pretty sure, cheaper than Emerson. So when our parents were kids, it was it was actually something that you could pay your way through college. That could have been a reality yeah. for you. Harvard was not always a co-ed university. They had a sister college called Radcliffe College, very Harry Potter sounding, that existed hmm. from 1879 until the final merger with Harvard concluded in 1999. The med school began admitting women in 1945, and you could go to Radcliffe and take 
Harvard classes from the 60s and 70s onward. All Harvard freshmen live in the yard until they get sorted into houses. Also very Harry Potter. Wow, very Harry Potter. It is these upper-level dorms where our murder takes place. And now, to our ill-fated roommates. Sinadu Tedesi was born on September 25th, 1975 in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. During her child, there was a lot of unrest going on in Ethiopia, and there was a famine actually from... 1983 to 1985, with estimates killing over 1 million people. Coinciding with the famine, Sinadu's father was jailed for two years. She did really well in school, but she suffered socially. She wasn't close to any of her classmates or family members, so she didn't really develop in the way that a lot of us do. Her devotion to her studies led to her being admitted to the International Community School in Addis Ababa. Later, she was her high school's valedictorian, and president of the student government. So to me, she couldn't have been that antisocial if she was elected president of the student government. But yeah, yeah. got to be charismatic to do that. But before she knew it, she was off to Harvard University to study medicine on a full scholarship. Once at Harvard, Sinadu was now not a standout student, but one of the many. She had a GPA in the threes, and this would not be good enough to continue to Harvard Medical School. Sinadu made no friends while at Harvard. She sent letters to dozens of strangers that she just picked random out of the phone book. I know they don't even make phone books like that anymore. But Damn, yeah. Yeah, but she would go on to describe her unhappiness and pleaded with the people on the other end of those letters to be her friend. One woman got really alarmed by the bizarre writings that she received back and eventually just stopped replying. Another woman just found that shit purely weird and sent it to a friend who had actually worked at Harvard University to review, and it was just tucked into Sinadu's file and not seen until after the horrible events unfolded. Sinadu kept a journal where she recorded when she had interactions with people and scored herself on how those interactions went, which sounds incredibly time-consuming. Also, how few interactions are you having that after each one you can pause and reflect? After freshman year, her roommate Anna, she ended up choosing to live with someone else, and Sinadu was sorted into Dunster House, which also sounds very Harry Potter as a name. Trang was assigned to be her new roommate, and Sinadu became obsessed with being her roommate and best friend all in one. Toward the end of their junior years, Trang was over Sinadu's needy behavior and let her know that she would be rooming with someone else the next fall. And in a letter, Trang had to tell Sinadu to chill out and to respect her decision. Sinadu had been seeking psychiatric help from the university. And after the fact, her psychiatrist said that he was only meeting with her every other week and that there was no indication to him that something like this would happen. Trang Phong Ho was born in Vietnam in the 1970s and she fled her native Vietnam when she was 10 years old and she fled on a boat with just her father. And the boat was so crowded, she said, that everyone on board had to stand. The duo first disembarked in Indonesia, and she ended up learning English there at a refugee camp. Finally, the family moved to Massachusetts, just outside of Boston, I think. Or she goes to John D. O'Brien, so you have to live in Boston to go there. But I think I was looking at other sources that she lived in Melrose or Mel Medford, and I did not want to put either, because I did not want to be wrong. But she lives, okay. her, her people end up settling just a little bit north of Boston. She was valedictorian of Boston Technical High School, which is now the John D. O'Brien High School, which I've mentioned, which is actually two streets away from 19 Duffy Street. 
during her time at Harvard, she was the vice president of the Vietnamese Students Association and worked as a tutor to other refugees on the side. She had an internship at the Dana-Farber Hospital in Boston and dreamed of being a pediatrician. You know, getting a internship at Dana-Farber is not easy. They really, you know, take the, the cream of the crop. <laughs> Just three months before the murder took place, the Crimson, the school newspaper, had been writing a piece about how Harvard needed to do more for student mental health services and really beef up their systems and it took at that time in 1995 15 10 to 15 business days to be able to speak to a counselor and meeting with a consecutive counselor like the same one over and over again was not a priority the university health plan also did not cover treatment at outside hospitals so not only are you being forced to wait to get services you're not allowed to then take it into your own hands and go someplace else when they're being unresponsive in 1995, three students at Harvard had taken their own lives, and two of those individuals also lived at Dunster House. In spite of this, no broad institutional changes were made, although they did increase the number of staff that they had threefold. Sinadu had neglected to show up to three of her finals, but she did attend two of them. I kind of feel like this was her going back and forth on her decision, but no one at the school noticed she was absent. Like, she didn't have any friends, she wasn't you know, engaged like that with her studies and her professors. So no one noticed that she had missed these exams and they didn't check on her. The Tuesday before the murder, Sinidu sent the Harvard Crimson a photo of herself and a note that said there would soon be, quote, a juicy story, unquote, about this person and to save this picture. But everyone kind of looked at it and was like, what the fuck? And the picture was soon thrown away, only to be found in the trash after the murder by the police. She also had coffee with another student from Ethiopia this week, and he thinks that this was like her saying goodbye to him. Trang has a best friend, her name is Tao, and she had come over the night before they were supposed to move out to help start packing Trang's belongings. And she said that while they were there, Sinadu was weeping on her side of the room. On the morning of the murder, Trang and Tao were at Trang's dorm room and they were sleeping head to foot. They heard Sinadu's alarm go off at like, 6 5 30 in the morning very early and they quickly went back to bed after they heard the sound of the shower in the bathroom it is believed that while the shower was on Sinadu was tying the noose and crying and hoping that that would cover up the sound when tao awoke next she saw Sinadu standing over trang stabbing her in the face she had put her hands up and tried to stop her and was injured in the process tao was able to get out of the bed and run out of the room but heard the door click behind her she had just left Trang alone in the room with Sinadu. As we all know, the college dorm rooms, they're not equipped to, to just remain unlocked. They always just lock right behind them and you need the key or the tap to get back in. In the courtyard, she, she like it's Sunday, like it's a very quiet Sunday morning. Sun's just risen, so there's not really anyone out in the courtyard. She runs outside. Finally, someone comes out and um, she and other Dunster House residents call for help. When the police entered the room, they found Trang on the floor. She had tried to crawl to the door for help, but she did not survive after being stabbed a total of 45 times. The bathroom door was barricaded shut, and when opened, they found Sinadu hanging in the shower. That's, that's awful. That is an awful story. Terrible. And I, yeah. And it's crazy to think how recent this was. Like, it just feels so right. close. Like, 
I've I've known people to go through some some pretty bad mental health crises, and same as Harvard schools don't really care. Like they do not prioritize their students, and um, while that the the Crimson reported on a something that was this relevant, like a couple weeks before. Right, Trang ended up being buried at Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge. Her tombstone is inscribed. You decide. For me, I will make many differences. And this was a quote from her high school valedictorian speech. Because she probably would have made a lot of differences in a lot of, you know, kids' lives as a pediatrician. Sinadu was buried back in Ethiopia. Her actions really shocked her community as suicide is not a cultural norm in Ethiopia. Then President of Harvard, Neil Rudenstein, visited the crime scene Sunday morning and wrote to the residents of Dunster House saying he was, quote, deeply saddened, unquote by the tragedy it's like he basically said thoughts and prayers at a convocation in the fall reverend peter j gomes said that that future hope was tragically cut short by the crazed hands of violence in the spring and yet that violence should not exercise its dominion over us and it should not hold us hostage to the past to 70 people who had attended the memorial at um appleton chapel in september Harvard, actually, a good thing that they did, I think, is uh, they established a scholarship in Trang's name called the Trang Ho Public Service Fellowship. They actually this time responded to their lack of mental health services, and they ended up um, mandating that first-time appointments be scheduled within seven days as opposed to the 10 to 15 days. We made it slightly less shitty for you. Hooray! (laughs) (laughs) We cut shittiness in half, okay? (laughs) It increased its emergency hours and staffing, and it changed its hours to better fit student schedules. In addition, mental health liaison tutors were installed in each house, and empty suites were set aside as safe spaces, which I think in 1995, a safe space was kind of unheard of, so that's pretty great. Especially because I feel like at Harvard, the likelihood that your roommate is crazy is probably really high because of the proximity of genius. Three years later, Trang's family decided to sue Harvard and brought a wrongful death suit against them, but the results are actually unknown. There's no publication of what happened to that wrongful death suit, but I guess I wanted to bring light to this tragedy this Halloween season because, you know, it's a close-to-home story, and I'm getting ready to leave college forever myself. I'm so excited. Do it. As we sit here, 48 more days. But anyway, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Fatal Fortunes. Um, I hope that upon listening to this, you guys reach out to a friend that you know might not be having the best time and checking in on them and reaching out to them because the systems and the services around them could be letting them down right now and they just need someone to ask how they're doing. So please go do that, guys. And remember, on Tuesdays, Nathan and I talk ghosts. See you next time. Bye.